and it's live. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Morality of Everyday Things. I'm Jake. Uh, I'm Anne. And on this podcast, we look at the kind of ethical questions you might ask in your day-to-day life, such as, are you a bad person if you work at Facebook? Or, in today's episode, are footballers overpaid? Worth saying, we're longtime friends. We founded a business together. Stasher, check it out. We got some cool news at the end of the episode, actually, so please stick around. We met studying a mix of philosophy, economics, politics, business management at the University of Oxford eight years ago, but also at the School of Life. (laughs) We'll make some time for listeners' comments at the end of the show, but just quickly before we do, welcome to all the new listeners who subscribed after the latest episode we did on Facebook. What up? Not that we wish to glow. We definitely wish to glow. (laughs) The Facebook episode got several thousand upvotes on Reddit, woke up to see it had been Downloaded over 5,000 times. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. We've been real dicks on uh, Facebook podcasting groups. You know, people are like, I had 200 listens. We're like, yeah, man, you know what? Like 12,000 listens. No big deal, though. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not taking the blame for that. That was all you. (laughs) Yeah. What was cool with the Facebook one was we actually even got reaction from people in Facebook itself. Yeah, Mark Zuckerberg is actually a listener. The episode brought on a kind of soul on the road to Damascus epiphany, and a lot of them, they all came forward to confess their sins. Actually, I, I think... That's a lie. They mostly stuck to that party PR line, not maliciously, but you know, like, no, we're really changing internally. Mark's listening to us. And it was like, oh, first name times. Yeah, yeah, we, <laughs> yeah, it definitely looks like Mark's listening to you. But I mean, no, no, in fairness, like we say in the actual episode, listen to it. There are legitimate reasons, and that's fair enough. So we should say on that subject, our aim in this podcast is not to tell you what to think, it's more about like how to think. What's the right way to break down a question? How do you go about getting an answer if indeed there is an answer? More often than not, there is no right answer. I, I mean, I'm going to tell you straight up, pretty much every episode we do, the correct answer is it depends. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it depends on what. That's what we're really pointing out. So um, with that Facebook question, you know, our lean in the end was towards, uh, yes, it seems to be kind of a bad thing. But we're fans of nuance. So we inevitably kind of said, look, that doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. You know, you can do some, one bad thing. And, and not everyone there is necessarily doing bad. We phrase it as a yes-no question, but the answer is clearly somewhere in the middle. And that's kind of the key, right? The most interesting ethical questions do lie in that gray area, in that area where, you know, there's nuance and people disagree. To be fair, given my, my own opinion on it, it was quite interesting how many people just held the view that, like, a job is a job and mm. it is practically, it is pretty much an amoral thing, which I think is insane considering it's how you basically spend your life contributing to society most yeah it's where you dedicate most of your time right i think yeah literally anyway on to today's episode today's question is are footballers overpaid i'm pretty excited about this one yeah i mean as an overpaid footballer uh, (laughs) i wish yeah no we we stuck with the yes no format but you know the, the plan is to balance out the arguments on both sides and you can see for yourself which side you think weighs you a little more before we do that we're going to start the same place we always do which is defining the terms of the question a little bit more specifically. So in today's question, we need to answer, what does it mean to be overpaid? And what is a footballer? Asking what a footballer is may sound a bit silly, but much like the Facebook episode, it's, it's more of a question of why have we chosen to talk about footballers in the context of overpaid? What do they represent? Who are the groups that are perhaps interchangeable with them in the context of this question? We'll see that footballers are actually kind of representative of you know, a, a class of sports people and to some extent entertainers who earn in modern society inordinate amounts for their work and are literally major celebrities. However, whilst the work is, is highly entertaining, I think there's certainly an argument across all of these strands. Modern society can't function without, you know, the huge businesses and all the people involved in running all the different facets of, you know, the internet, food supply chains, healthcare. But we certainly could survive without football or actors, or at least we could survive without them being paid crazy amounts of money. Mm. We indeed existed without overpaid footballers and actors for many millennia. Suffice it to say, footballers were not on the essential workers list uh, during COVID lockdowns. We enjoy watching them. Entertainment is important, but someone being paid in the millions to kick or throw a ball is not a requirement for joy or entertainment to exist within society, uh, or indeed for people to even bother playing sports professionally. So it's worth noting, we're talking about football in the UK, but you mentioned kick or throw. 
to all our American fans, the football we're talking about is soccer. Soccer. <laughs> soccer. The question also does work for American footballers or other sports stars, as Ant mentioned. Mm. Here's a quick fun fact for you. Why is an American football called a football, even though you spend way more time throwing it than kicking it? I thought you said this fact was going to be fun. Go on, why, why, why is it called a football? Because the ball is one foot long. That's actually interesting. Yeah. I mean, I still question why it's called a ball when it's a weird pointy oblong rather than a sphere. But you could say the same thing about rugby balls. People's balls are oblongs. If your testes are pointy oblongs, you might want to get that checked out. Okay, so first let's focus on that question of what does it mean to be overpaid? Because that's, that's quite a charged term. So to describe someone as overpaid is to make a relative judgment. Like me saying, my dad eats too much. <laughs> <laughs> he's going to love that. <laughs> yeah, <he's> gonna... <laughs> but to be fair, it does sound judgy, right? Like you wouldn't want to be described personally as overpaid. Well, I mean, maybe you would if you've got like a really sweet contract and you're mm. really cushy. But There are some footballers who are in that position. Oh, yeah. But, but yes, what it's pointing to is, is a mismatch, either in what people are entitled to or what they deserve, which we'll consider the more moral argument. And this is relative to some correct amount or some acceptable range. And we basically call someone overpaid when the current state of affairs is relatively higher than that acceptable range. And now how we determine what that acceptable range is can vary when considering that kind of concept of economic entitlement versus moral desert. Okay, so let's take each in turn. Do you want to kick us off with economic entitlement? Yes, in economics, we're taught that when deriving wages there are basically firms who want to hire people and people who want jobs. And the price, i.e. their wage or their salary, is the point that satisfies the two. Uh, in other words, people only end up taking jobs at a price that suits them and firms only end up hiring people at prices that suit them too. So everyone wins. Basically, the correct point is roughly equal to the value you're adding to the company. Of course, that's the limit because otherwise it wouldn't make sense for the company to hire you. In practice, real life is a little bit messier than that. So economic theory assumes perfect or at least symmetric information, i.e. everyone knows everything about each other. But often that's not the case. And it also doesn't factor in another thing, which is bargaining power. Yeah, so we'll explain those quickly. So perfect information is the concept that the firm hiring you knows exactly how skilled you are and how much value you'll bring. Uh, symmetric means you both know this and agree on it. Like it, it's an objective truth. Uh, but in real life, that's obviously not true. Uh, it's why we have interviews. It's why we write CVs. And it's why we do lots of stuff to impress people and fill those CVs to try and prove that we do have value. All of this is what we call signaling in economics. We're trying to let people know that we have value. Signaling acknowledges that it's not very realistic that firms have perfect information about the candidates they want to hire. Some candidates will be good, some won't, but they all turn up to the interview and of course say, I am good, pick me. <laughs> so it's worth noting that all this stuff about signaling, like it's an interesting theory, but it doesn't actually apply so much to the case of footballers. Because football is a market where we actually have as close to perfect information about players' history as any labor market. And let's look at another sport quickly. In baseball, you can be even more granular about the statistics because every activity in baseball is kind of siloed versus like in football it's a more dynamic environment it's it's a fluid team sport but in baseball you pitch you bat everything's super measurable everything's super comparable there aren't that many confounding factors and it makes it really easy to measure how good a player is which Nate Silver famously did for anyone who's seen Moneyball that's a really interesting example where they use stats to hire an undervalued team because they figured out that other teams were analyzing stats in a more traditional way, using things like gut feel. Basically had some old guys go places and be like, this, <laughs> this kid's got it. Yeah, this guy's handsome and I like him. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. But they were missing out on key players whose stats suggested that actually they were great, but they were being overlooked. And I think the stat that they determined, the most undervalued one was first base percentage. I think so, yeah. Notably though, Moneyball hype only lasted so long because once teams realized that they were undervaluing for example, first base percentage, and a more statistical approach, kind of more holistically, they corrected for that. They corrected for the stats they'd been missing out on, and the information was factored into their future decisions. Yeah, correct. So informational asymmetry doesn't seem to be the reason then that footballers are paid so highly. The more interesting assumption for the context of this question is the one about bargaining power. If you remember, there were two caveats, perfect information and bargaining power. Yes. So bargaining power is when, kind of like it says, you can negotiate disproportionately in your favor. So for some reason other than true value. So 
So imagine you have an exceptional agent and he's able to attract interest in you from lots of teams and play them off against each other in order to drive up the perception of your value. So, you know, he's, he's calling people and saying, this guy is so hot right now. You, and you need to make a bid right now. I can't tell you what other people are bidding. So you're going to have to bid high to make sure you get him. You know, that sort of process. Terry Tibbs talking to me. <laughs> Terry Tibbs talking to me. Oh, phone jacker. Uh, chances are they'll end up with a really valuable contract, probably in excess of what they would have been paid if the situation wasn't manipulated or was, in economic terms, competitive. So bargaining power is actually super relevant to this question. Certainly to the interpretation of overpaid, which relates to that kind of economic entitlement part. In the case of entitlement, a simple definition could be this. Assuming someone should be paid up to the value that they're contributing. If you're paid more than the value you're contributing, then you're overpaid. So this question of entitlement is more of an objective consideration. It's not the judgy moral one that we, we mentioned earlier. It still can be kind of judgy because economic yeah. measurement is fuzzy, but go on. Yep. So then the next question is, how realistic is it to count up that value? Oh, right. Well, like I said, it's fuzzy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, for a footballer, some measurements are maybe easier, like shirt sales and merchandise. It's really hard to separate the marginal value of ticket sales or even winnings because it's such an interconnected game. It's hard to interpret the added value they're even bringing to the actual team, right? Though I'm, I'm sure that there are probably like big stats teams at each football team and at sports betting hedge funds trying to do exactly that. I think the one exception is if you're a human son at Tottenham and you can point to literally every Korean fan being there just because of you. you. Yeah, man. For those who don't know, he's a Korean footballer who plays at a UK club and it brought a huge Korean following. So we went to a game by our uh, insurers. Shout out to Guardhog. You, if you want to insure your Airbnb, check it out. Um, <laughs> there were so many Korean flags and you know we love Son banners and, and all the Korean fans. You can actually see the, the players drive up uh, after the game, which was weirdly mundane. <laughs> but, um, but people are out there trying to get autographs and stuff. So yeah, like he clearly brought a lot of value. Anyway, the, the, the point there is that we can try and reduce it to an objective judgment and that is one definition of being overpaid. Like in the context of your specific team or business, do you contribute relatively less than you earn? This is interesting. But when we ask are footballers overpaid, the subjective definition of what they should be paid is, is possibly more interesting because that's evaluating it in the context of what value do people bring to wider society and, and compared to other professions. This is where the moral judgment lies. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is really the one around moral desert, right? So when most people describe a profession as being overpaid, Wall Street bankers, actors, footballers, etc. This, I think, is the one that they're more driving at. It's a misalignment between the value that they're adding to wider society compared to other professions and the money that they're making. Assuming, and I think that this is a fair assumption, that when we think of paying people for their work, contribution to society is a good indicator, right? Because it indicates what the business should be making and the business then pays people. It basically becomes a question of how things should be, specifically a question of fairness. Whenever people have this argument, I think the super typical example that everyone gives is they compare footballers to nurses and teachers. You know, perhaps nursing and teaching isn't as competitive as top tier football, but I think it's hard to argue that they're not immensely valuable to wider society. However, a typical nurse in the NHS, for our American listeners, that's the state-funded healthcare we have, you should try it. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, a typical nurse will earn you know, something in the high 20s, 30, it depends where you are in the country, but let's be generous, maybe 40K a year, right? Definitely sub $60,000. There are a good number of footballers who earn more than that in a day. Uh, Lionel Messi, I think the highest paid footballer, earns 60 million a year just from his football contract. Yeah. So before considering endorsements, you know, the fact that he's an Instagram celebrity, you know, he, he's already earning over 100,000 per day. And a lot of people will explain this by economic reasoning. So Lionel Messi brings this much money to the club, so it makes sense. Or perhaps arguments along the lines of like, a lot of footballers don't make it. So, you know, we need big incentives to make it worth the risks of pursuing that career. Or also, you know, their playing careers are so short, et cetera, et cetera. But what I think is that that's missing the point. We don't care if they're overpaid relative to the value they're bringing the club. It's relative to the value they're bringing wider society. That's, that's what we really care about. Exactly. And I think we'll address the things you mentioned in more detail in the arguments section. But really quickly, I can't resist kind of answering some of the things that you mentioned there. Remember that sports leagues existed and had mass viewership way before people were being paid 60 million per year, way before that was even considered possible. It's fun, arguably a privilege to play sports professionally. And people will definitely do it for meaningfully smaller <laughs> wages 
And the type of people who want to compete in elite sports, do you think that they're the kind of people who really care whether they're earning 10 million or 20 million? Like it's a ton of money anyway. It happens in other sports, right? Yeah. What we're describing where people aren't paid and they're doing it for passion was the case throughout the 20th century. And yeah, like you say, it's, it's the case for most sports outside of like the biggest ones. If you think about athletics, for example, um, second one, to say it makes economic sense, just to reiterate the point that you made, is missing the point so, so deeply. It makes economic sense for fossil fuel companies to make huge amounts of money literally destroying the planet that we inhabit, they, that they <laughs> inhabit. Uh, I mean, it doesn't mean it's right or smart or fair, or most importantly, that they deserve to. It reminds me, there's a very funny comic it's of a bunch of people <laughs> sitting around a campfire and there's a guy in a tattered suit who says to everyone around him, yeah, I know it caused the, the end of global society and climate change has destroyed the planet, but for one short period in time, we were returning excellent value to our shareholders. <laughs> <laughs> so economic arguments are quite often descriptions of the incentives people are facing, but, but too often we're treating them as justifications for those incentives, which they're not. Justifying how things should be is the realm of the moral. We then come up with policy that aligns incentives as such. Explaining why something crappy is happening isn't a justification for it. To give an example that I think highlights this difference between entitlement and desert, uh, there's a good thought experiment that relates to a rich old dude who's giving his estate to his two sons for inheritance, okay? Uh, and he has one son who is, you know, a businessman, very rich, but he's quite cruel. And then he has another son who's, who's not particularly well off, but a good spirited person who takes care of others and, you know, gives to his local community, whatever. Take it that one is bad and one is good, right? If their father were to give the estate or, you know, give 90% of the inheritance to the businessman and 10% to the quote unquote good son. To highlight the difference between entitlement and moral desert, the son who is quote unquote bad is entitled to the vast majority of the estate. But when we think about moral desert, that's where we might say, it doesn't matter if they're entitled, we don't think he deserves it. Mm. And that's really the point that we're getting at. So haggling over the specifics of the will, whether it was made legitimately, for example, that's arguing over entitlements. Arguing over what the two sons need and deserve, that's arguing about desert. On the footballers versus nurses point. <laughs> versus nurses. Versus nurses. That'd be a terrible football match. <laughs> but on that footballers versus nurses point, the important thing here is that we recognize that nurses make an essential and so perhaps intrinsically more valuable contribution to society. Arguably, we may intuitively say that they deserve more. I mean, it would be a disaster if we didn't have enough of them, whereas it wouldn't be a disaster in the same way if we didn't have enough footballers. In fact, I'd argue the world would be no different if footballers were paid even a quarter of what they currently earn. Like, Ronaldo doesn't say, I'm only being paid 10 million, so I'll only give it a quarter of my best effort. Yeah, but obviously the same argument comparing footballers to doctors applies, as well as, as we mentioned, teachers and so, so many other jobs. Uh, but the nurse and doctors example, I think, is particularly poignant uh, this year, thanks to, you know, the good old COVID pandemic. These guys, you know, we're literally relying on them. They're designated as key workers. But is it fair to say that nursing is intrinsically more valuable? I mean, I get a lot of enjoyment and entertainment and joy out of following football every week. Uh, double the joy. <laughs> double the joy. Uh, so clearly that has some value to consider. I mean, even if some people are needed more desperately by society, does it necessarily make it intrinsically more valuable? Can the sheer massive enjoyment that football brings counterbalance the fact that it's sort of frivolous and can it actually justify those wages? I mean, I only need nurses when I get ill, right? Which is thankfully pretty rarely. That said, I was deeply appreciative when they were there when I broke my wrist last year and a lot of them work horrible shifts in tough conditions, like the guys in A&E who were there putting my cast on at midnight. So in a way, it was an appreciation that was kind of richer than what I may feel from watching football because it was essential. So let's dig a little deeper. In the first case, you're overpaid relative to an acceptable range based on economic value. In this case, you're overpaid relative to an acceptable range based on perhaps societal value contribution, considering both how essential that contribution is and how large that contribution is. So in the case of footballers, whilst admittedly sport is relatively frivolous compared to healthcare, perhaps the sheer scale of its audience justifies it. Anyway, the societal value contribution is here what we'd call the basis of our moral dessert. The basis of most desserts is a buttery biscuit base. Ha. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny to reflect, by the way. I suppose it's something of a flaw of modern capitalism that the moral entitlement and the dessert have become so deeply misaligned, right? Like, I think in a healthy form of capitalism, money should be the reward for adding value. There should be no case where entitlement doesn't really match dessert. Agreed. So let's take a closer look at what's happened in football to drive up wages quite so high. 
Okay, so Jake, why do we pick footballers? So we've mentioned already, people like to debate this question because top footballers do get paid a lot of money. But football is itself just a game, quote unquote. We've also said this could apply to several different kinds of sports. In fact, it could also apply to many top entertainers like actors and musicians. If you're a fan of English football, or even if you're not, you are no doubt aware that footballers in the top leagues get weekly wages well in excess of most people's annual wages. But what you may not realize is how quickly this transition has taken place. So stick with us and we'll give you a potted history of how footballers went from being amateur unpaid sportsmen to someone like Lionel Messi earning almost a million euros a week. Let's rewind quickly to the 1870s. <laughs> uh, <laughs> back then, football was purely amateur. Uh, it was played for fun on England's green and pleasant land. In 1879, scandal rocked the footballing world <gasps> because a Lancashire team called Darwin were found to be paying two of their players. Evil. So even then, the importance of winning, and I assume there was prize money at stake in the FA Cup, it was driving people to pay for talent and, in this case, break the rules. So although this was the first scandal, it was not the only one. By 1885, so many teams were paying players on the sly that, in the end, the FA basically said, fine, football can become professional. And very quickly, paying players became the norm. And wages started to spiral out, out of control. Out of control. With players being played one pound a week, <laughs> Reportedly, there was a player called Nick Ross, and he transferred from Preston North End to Everton, I imagine breaking all the records back in the 18, <laughs> 1880s or 90s, uh, and he was receiving £2.50 a week. Some context is important here. At the time, the average wage of a working man was probably about £1, but people with specialist skills could earn as much as £2.50. And bear in mind, a lot of these footballers, even the highest paid ones, they were only part-time professionals, so they would have had other jobs on the side. So really, this was like the semi-pro era. So this is kind of like earning 40K for like a part-time job. So in the 1890s, this trend continued. And the top clubs started paying their best players as much as five pounds a week. And the league decided that this was taking the piss. And it imposed a four pound weekly wage cap. Fair enough. Some clubs found clever ways to attract talent around this. So they paid bonuses for wins, etc. But essentially, the wage cap kind of kept things under control. It's also worth noting that the wage cap didn't affect that many players. Uh, because it was set so high for the time. Four pounds was a lot of money back then, and only really top, top players were affected by that cap. And things basically stayed this way for a long time. From 1890 until 1960, the wage cap stayed in place. It increased every now and then. By about 1960, we get to a £20 wage cap. And then in 1961, under pressure from the Footballers' Union, who were threatening to strike, the Football League abolished the maximum wage. Oh man, and if, if things were spiraling in the 1890s, oh, things got crazy. Yeah, when the cap was abolished, the same year saw the first £100 a week player. So that's five times increase. Yeah, and for context, the average industrial wage in 1961, that would have been £15 a week. So that's already a massive jump. The jumps continue. In 1979, we see the first £1,000 a week player, which was the England goalkeeper, Peter Shilton. Why the hell was a goalkeeper paid so much? It was, a, it was a big deal, I guess. Oh, well. <laughs> kind of a big deal. There's <laughs> yeah, something like a lead from the back or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. 15 years later, in 1994, we see the first 10 grand a week player. Roy Keane then became the first 50 grand a week player in 1999. I have a signed shirt by him. Wait, you met Roy Keane? Him and Rio Ferdinand and someone else. Did you get one of his angry photos? The Peter Crouch podcast does this great series of like Roy Keane photos where people have asked Roy Keane for a photo. And he just looks angry. <laughs> he's said like, yeah, right, but you better make it f***ing quick. <laughs> <laughs> Roy was actually, so he was the first 50k a week player. Sol Campbell doubled that to 100 grand a week in 2001. Yeah, and I mean, nowadays, that's you know, not even that uncommon to earn 100 grand a week. Uh, you see players in the Premier League in 2020 earning over 300,000 in a week. The average Premier League weekly wage last season was 60,000 in, in a week. Wow. And remember, there's two or three more tiers below the Premier League where people are still making really good living. You know, we're talking like some people's annual salary in a week. Here's a few more interesting stats. Premier League clubs spend 60% of their income on players' salaries. And in a middling Premier League club, it can be more like 75%. Jeez. Uh, I mean, we'll mention this later, but... You know, nowadays a football club is making like, a, a big football club is making half a billion to a billion. Small football clubs are making hundreds of millions. So 60% on that is not small. Mm. Um, did you know that actually, uh, shout out to our friends from the Acquired Podcast, good podcast about businesses if you're interested. Uh, they have one on the NBA. That's actually how the NBA pays players. The league agrees a percentage of total revenue that is paid to the players. That's pretty cool. As we've seen, the weekly numbers have risen a lot since the cap was abolished. 
But it's also a point that's worth bearing in mind for the arguments later, because a lot of other people work at football clubs, from coaching staff to caterers to groundsmen, and it's not as if they share in anything like that much percentage of compensation. Okay, here's a second stat. Of all the correlations that govern football, one is more striking than all of them. The correlation between wage spend and league victory is 80%. Wow. So this doesn't mean that in every given game, the richer team will win. Actually, they win about half the time, draw 30% of the time, and still lose 20% of the games. But obviously, if you play that out over a season, on average, the clubs that spend more will win more. So this isn't a surprising stat. It probably sounds pretty obvious when I'm saying it, but it's an important reminder of why, without caps, clubs are driven to pay so much for the top talent. It's interesting how the American leagues get this so much better mm. with, I think they're very good at like limiting external investment. Like they're good at spreading the money the league makes and but limiting money from outside to specific teams. And they're really good with the draft system. And, and it's kind of this acknowledgement that like keeping it more competitive is actually better for everyone. You know, it's funny because that's a good analogy for society, but they're so bad at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, of all the places. How did yeah. that happen in America? How, how, did, yeah. how did it happen? That, like, what you're doing with your sports league, do that with, like, life. <laughs> <laughs> like, if, if you make it more competitive, it's better for everyone. Sorry if anyone disagrees with us there. We'll stick to the philosophy. We'll keep away from politics. No promises. One final statistic. There are around 4,000 professional footballers in the UK. We'll see this is relevant to an argument that people often make. The number of pro football players compared to other careers is very small, and the truly ridiculous wages really only apply to the best of the best, the guys at the top of the game. Not to say the average championship player is having a tough time slumming it at 30k a week. <laughs> True. There are hundreds of thousands of players who try and make it as professionals, right? If not, if not more, if you count the people who don't go through academies but play football just for fun, hoping to be scouted. Before we wrap up this segment, there's one other critical point about how and why the business of football has changed. You know, we said Messi makes 60 million today. And we've talked a lot about caps, but clearly there's more to it than just caps, which was stopping footballers in the 1800s earning 60 million, right? Inflation adjusted, whatever amount that was. Yeah, correct. The business of football has changed radically in much the same way that a lot of entertainment has. And football is essentially just a form of entertaining content. Whether it was watching sports or a play or listening to music, in the 18th and 19th century, the financial limitation to these forms of entertainment used to be things like venue capacity and how many shows you could put on. These businesses have been radically changed by the ability to record and broadcast their content via radio, TV, and now the internet. Suddenly, there's no technical limitation to literally everyone on the planet watching a game. And obviously, where there's more attention, there's more money. Not to mention that the same game can be rewatched forever, which I guess applies more to film and music, but you know, it, it, it still exists. You can see the classics sometimes on TV, especially now that during the period where they couldn't play football. <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually watch far too many old football games. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, more eyeballs means the ads become more valuable, makes broadcasting contracts more valuable, and then makes commercial deals more valuable too. So the flywheel just keeps on spinning. Yeah, and this has resulted in huge growth in football club revenues. So the top clubs in the world, as I mentioned a little earlier, are making in the 500 to 1 billion range, just shy of 1 billion in the case of the top one. Let's take the specific example of Manchester United. In just the last 10 years, their revenue has more than doubled from 280 million to 630 million. The interesting thing is that almost all of that revenue has been from broadcasting and commercial deals, which is sponsorships, licensing, merchandising, etc. Match day revenues actually decreased in 2019 versus 2009. And to give all of that a little more context, even beyond, in 1992, their revenue was just 25 million, right? So if they made 25 million in 1992, after adjusting for inflation, that's 50 million in today's money. So that means that in just under 20 years, they've increased the revenue of the business by over 12 times. We can only imagine how that compares to how they did in the mid 1900s. So suffice it to say, football clubs have hugely benefited from the technology that has allowed their content to be beamed across the world, growing their potential audience by billions. And that's, that's interesting from a business perspective, but I think it's really interesting as well from that perspective of that moral dessert point. Given that this growth has been driven by the growth of the internet and increase in value due to broadcasting, etc., I can see how that economically explains footballers becoming more valuable and makes their bargaining power stronger. But morally, it feels kind of arbitrary, right? In a sense, they got lucky. It turns out that they were in a profession that can be turned into content and mass distributed at near no marginal cost. That's nothing to do with how hard they're working at football. If anything, the creators of the distribution channels deserve that value, if we're thinking about it from a moral perspective. I guess in practice, it's a little bit more nuanced as to who creates the value, right? Like, 
when a journalist writes a great article and a huge paper distributes it widely, who's responsible for the creation of that value? No one would have read it without the distribution, but then the paper needs high quality reporting to have anything to distribute. So in any case, to say footballers don't deserve so much money now, it kind of becomes synonymous with saying they don't deserve so much more relative to themselves, relative to footballers and what they earned in perhaps the 1890s or the 1960s, since the increase in value is not due to anything that they have done. That said, as you just mentioned, there's a little bit of debate as to who's you know, creating that value that the distribution is allowing. And they are entertaining so many more people because of it. But to accept that argument is a bit uncomfortable, as it essentially saying that the reason nurses don't deserve to be paid as much as footballers is that they haven't found a way to scale the distribution of their work, which, as we said earlier, just feels like it should be irrelevant to nurses nursing and footballers footballing. <laughs> if anything, it feels like the entrepreneurs or governments that have created those technologies that allow the distribution deserve to capture much more of that value. And the trickle of value to footballers is more a result of some perverse bargaining power they've acquired. Unless they're dabbling in inventing TV transmission systems in their spare time. In which case, fair enough. Fair enough. Credit to them. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, that was some important context about footballers and the business of football. Now onto the part where we answer the question. Are footballers overpaid? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with the arguments that say yes. Okay, so let's remind ourselves quickly the definitions that we had for being overpaid. Being overpaid is a relative statement, relative to some benchmark of what we consider to be reasonable. And we broke that into an economic entitlement and a moral desert. You can be overpaid compared to the value you're bringing to the club. That's about entitlement. That's being, you know, quote unquote, objective. Or more morally, you can be overpaid compared to what you're contributing to wider society. One point that's really important, and we said it already, and we'll repeat it throughout. It's easy, can't to stop. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to look at this question and explain why footballers are paid so much and feel that you have answered it. But remember, an explanation is not a justification. Describing the world as it is, is not the same as describing the world as it should be. Exactly. Right. Starting on the side of the argument, yes, they are overpaid. Let's look at the first point, the entitlement one. Are footballers overpaid compared to the value they bring to their clubs? We mentioned in the, in the context section that football clubs spend about 60% of their revenue, sometimes more, on their players' wages. But remember, a lot of other work is going into packaging up and distributing the entertainment content that is football. And then there is the distribution factor. The interesting thing is 60% of revenue on just the players might not even be economically sustainable, right, as a, as a business. The result is that you have this crazy race for billionaires to invest in clubs and subsidize them as some kind of crazy ego trip. Haven't you said that you'd like to play Charlton Football Club? I will one day. <laughs> is, it, is this a formal offer? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I'm really grateful for the eccentric billionaire who just did buy yeah. Charlton. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. Yeah. But yeah, no, essentially it's true. That it, it's a trope, but many football clubs basically rely on ego tripping billionaires. It's, and it's the same in the US. Like NBA clubs are owned by Jay-Z, Steve Ballmer. Mm. Like people buy them almost as like a statement. For those clubs to spend that much on player salaries it may well just not make financial sense, except for one fact. If everyone else is doing it and you don't, you'll lose out. I suppose it also diminishes the spirit of the sport a bit, right? Mm. Like you said, generally the richer team wins, at least in the UK, like I said, in the US, maybe they're a bit stricter on that. It doesn't sound very sporting. It becomes a kind of prisoner's dilemma. It puts a lot of pressure, especially on lower teams, to spend over and above their means to have any chance even of competing. And the result is, that really it will require some kind of collective action or regulation by football's governing bodies to control this. I mean, they have in recent years introduced all sorts of financial fair play rules, but 
that's more about like mitigating financial doping of the kind that Man City have done so successfully. It's less about regulating players' wages. Mm. As a kind of meta side point, it's actually, as we mentioned earlier in the, in the case of the US, in the best interest of fans that fair competition is promoted. That makes a more entertaining sport because it's a more competitive league. Otherwise, you end up with these cycles of dominance and distress where the rich clubs grow richer. The Spanish league is basically who's going to win, Barcelona or Real. The French and, league is <laughs> when will PSG win? <laughs> yeah. At what point in the season can they guarantee it? Uh, and then on, on the other side of it, you have a bunch of teams that just yo-yo up and down between leagues. Um, so to come back to the question, as you said, we can easily point to the fact that there's a lot of money in football. The top players are the best in the world. So they, they're just getting a fair cut of the revenue. The problem is that's not true. The reason it's not a fair share is because the players today have immense bargaining power. Now, the bargaining power phenomenon is not new. As you'll remember from the example of the footballers back in the 1880s who first managed to convince their club to pay them at all, and then again, the guys who bargained up their wages to a whopping five pounds, <laughs> bargaining power has always been a feature of the game. The top players can threaten to take their talent elsewhere, and that's just the negotiating position they hold. But what's ridiculous today is the monetary values that are attached to their talents. So why do they have so much bargaining power? Because of scarcity. There are many distributors, Sky, BT Sports, uh, Amazon now. Yeah. There are many clubs. But each footballer, in some sense, is a unique entity. There's, there are many strikers, but there's only one Lionel Messi. Only one Lionel Messi. That's a football chant for those who don't know. <laughs> that was obvious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, we're not very good, but I think, actually, interesting fact for American listeners. Please Google American versus UK chants. In the UK, they will disseminate through Facebook groups and forums organized chants targeting like specific players that they like and dislike and you know they have like traditional songs and stuff and then there's like I saw this video that's like putting this against the US and the US is like we will win we will win <laughs> <laughs> like, like if you ask an English football fan who's really religiously gone the chanting culture is oh, actually it's like a big deal, yeah. it's a big part of it right that they will sing actual songs pointing at the people you that like and lyrics, dislike man. yeah they, you have to learn lyrics and they and there's some leader in the fans club who's like leading the songs right exactly yeah that's yes yeah. um sorry yeah but you know chance aside compounding the sparking power issue that we discussed there's also the agents the bidding process isn't exactly transparent and agents play into this fact so because they have so much bargaining power especially the very best of the players like the messies and ronaldo's this lets them command absurdly high wages because they have these agents and they can just threaten to walk and it just yeah it, it all adds up to them getting paid basically as much as they can claim of the club's revenue. So provided they continue to perform, there will always be billionaire owners looking to attract them to their club with even better offers. And remember, this is an explanation, but it's not a justification. Actually, what we're saying here is that it's wrong. Like this bargaining power makes the resultant wage unfair. Yeah, I think it's the same thing you see with people taking on the other end of the spectrum, minimum wage jobs, right? Mm. A lot of people will say, you know, oh, economic theory, you know, the wages are the ways that people accept, so it's fair, etc. But it, it doesn't acknowledge a, a concept of bargaining power and the fact that some people might be stuck and have no choice and have to accept this minimum wage, right? Mm. So basically what we're saying is because of this bargaining power, footballers are overpaid relative to what they contribute to their clubs, objectively speaking. This does also raise a side issue. And it, actually, it's one that we saw during the pandemic. There was a lot of shade thrown at footballers in the early days when clubs decided to furlough their non-playing staff. So uh, like they put them on this government scheme, but they did nothing about the footballers' pay and that ended up putting a lot of media pressure on footballers to agree to wage cuts. But that in itself wasn't actually a majorly useful redistribution because all it meant is that the money that would have been spent on their wages stayed with the club's owners. So it doesn't necessarily get redistributed to other staff. People like the Gunnosaurus. Oh, the Gunnosaurus. Uh, for, for anyone who doesn't know this, he was Arsenal's mascot. He was a green dinosaur. He'd been with the club for 27 years. He got told he'd be let go during the pandemic because the club was not able to have crowds back to the stadium. There were some great stories that followed. Like, Seville announced that they'd got this hot new transfer target and followed it up with a picture <laughs> of the Gunnosaurus. And the, I mean, the actual Gunnosaurus was uh, some, some old yeah, Arsenal fan, a, right? like a six-year-old Arsenal fan called Jerry, I think. Oh, man. And it was actually Ozil, one of Arsenal's most famously overpaid players, who stepped in to kindly cover the Gunnosaurus's wage. But for him, that was literally one day's pay. So don't think he's uh, some philanthropist. Ozil knows how to play PR, man. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, that's maybe not a bad time to segue to the moral. On the yes, they're overpaid side. On the yes, they're overpaid side. But speaking about like, you know, regular everyday guys like Jerry the Gunnosaurus, are footballers overpaid relative to what they contribute to wider society? The average Premier League footballer earns over three million a year. 
the average UK citizen earns just 30K a year. That puts them at 100 times the average person. Yep, good math. Uh, which, you know, that might be, maybe we should stop measuring them in numbers because it becomes hard to, hard to consider. They should be measured in multiples, the same way that we think about CEOs as like multiple of their lowest mm. paid staff member. So anyway, the point is that top footballers earn more in a day than your average UK citizen earns in a year. It's fair to say that footballers do entertain millions of people. And, you know, they're under a lot of pressure. And I love football, genuinely. Like, I'm a huge fan of the game, as you well know. I follow it fairly obsessively. I also love playing it. And that's the key thing, right? I, I pay to play football. <laughs> like, I can't imagine how great it would be to be paid to play something you love playing. Like, I put up with all the pressure and the short career and probably a lot of Twitter hate. <laughs> just to be paid, like, one week's worth of Premier League players' wages. Also, I just want to point out, when people say that, oh, they only have, like, a 10-year working life, totally doesn't acknowledge the time value of money. Making a ton of money in your 20s to 30s is the best way to get rich because then you just manage the money for the rest of your life as long as you're not an idiot and didn't waste it. Exactly. Anyway. And if you're getting 100 times the average salary for one year's work, it's not that hard. saves you 100 years of work. <laughs> yeah, it's, like, it's like, I don't care if you only have 10 years. You, you have a thousand years of salary saved up in that 10-year period. Anyway, yeah. um, I think the basis of the moral argument that footballers are overpaid is that at the end of the day, their job is to entertain. It's hard to make a case that entertainment is somehow more important than any number of other life or death careers or, or hugely you know, impactful careers, such as healthcare, work in national security, teaching, or the provision of food. I mean, I can see an argument that as our species has evolved and we spend less and less time each day dedicated to essential tasks for survival, like eating and sleeping. Actually, we probably spend the same amount of time eating and sleeping as we used to, but we don't have yeah. to hunt and yeah, I get you. stuff. You know what I mean? So that has freed us up to spend more time doing things like learning and seeking out entertainment. No, I, I get that. And, you know, there's more to life than living. It's not just surviving. We need to enjoy ourselves too. But uh, I would like to point out, as I said earlier, it's a false dichotomy to say you either have footballers paid 60 million a year or no football entertainment yeah, at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's so true. And also coming back to the moral, when you strip it to its fundamentals, footballers are just very well-paid entertainers. And I'd argue that as a society, their compensation is inconsistent. You know, it implies that we don't value healthcare workers and others enough when we allow footballers to be paid just so much compared to nurses and doctors. So let's flip it around and discuss why they may not be overpaid. From the economic side, clearly, if people are consistently paying these prices and a decent number of top tier clubs are consistently and very profitable nowadays, I, I believe that is the case, um, then that seems to suggest that these players are, are worth the money and there are decent arguments that this is true. Take the example of Ronaldo. He transferred to Juventus for 100 million. They sold 60 million worth of Ronaldo t-shirts in just the first 24 hours. <laughs> That's actually pretty impressive. Yeah, so perhaps this stacks up, you know, something being expensive doesn't mean it's bad value. And yeah, you throw in the multifaceted nature of the business models these days and it makes even more sense. Ronaldo isn't just a footballer who's going to increase their chance of winning leagues. He's a superstar celebrity in his own right with nearly 250 million Instagram followers. So when you sign Ronaldo, you're not just, that <laughs> sounds like one of those adverts, right? Yeah. You're not just buying a Ronaldo. <laughs> <laughs> it's buying marketing. It's bringing tons of new views to Juventus. I mean, as a simple example, 1 million additional followers followed Juventus's Twitter page immediately after they signed Ronaldo. So think about all the clips on social media that he did for the signing and him doing really cool moves when he plays, like that ridiculously high jump he did. He jumped 70 centimeters to reach two and a half meters high just to head in across. And it's pretty yeah, cool. For anyone who doesn't know, Google it. See how high he is in the air. Because, you know, be like, oh, whatever, like basketballers. Like, he, I, I'm pretty sure he's jumping higher than most basketball players can jump. Yeah, right. Pretty cool. So maybe considering that football clubs are becoming big, maybe it's not right to think of them as, you know, things that manage football teams. They're, they're big interconnected media machines nowadays. And these players are hugely valuable assets outside of just playing football. So maybe it makes sense. Uh, but again, what makes something make economic sense is not what makes it fair. An explanation is not a justification. We'll keep saying this until it's drummed into your brains, listeners, so you better keep listening. Repeat, <laughs> repeat after me. An explanation is not a justification. <laughs> From the moral perspective, I think the crux of whether or not they're overpaid comes down to that question of where the value comes from. So are the footballers or other distributors the ones creating the value? Is it the journalist or the newspaper, to use the analogy from earlier? I think there's a decent argument to be made that the answer is somewhere in the middle. As it depends. <laughs> <laughs> right, so that's basically following that line of argument that says football entertains such a huge amount of people that they're effectively adding a ton of values to society, so they deserve to be paid a ton. 
yeah, it's, it's saying that it's not distributors alone who are creating that value. And what of the argument that the work that they're doing is frivolous? You know, maybe that's a harsh word, but you get what I mean. Entertainment is important, but we don't need to watch people who are paid extortionate amounts for entertainment to exist at all. People back in the 1500s still had entertainment, and people in the 1990s probably didn't see anything wrong with the state of affairs back then. Uh, and, you know, assuming that they didn't foresee how crazy it would become, I, I doubt footballers back then felt underpaid. So would have any reason to, you know, underperform intentionally or something. <laughs> so I guess, is it fair to say then that we think that they're overpaid? Yeah, and I, I actually, I like your conclusion from earlier best. They are overpaid, but it's, it's not that false dichotomy. I mean, footballers could be paid a lot less and still provide quality entertainment. Yeah. And, and still objectively be being paid a lot of money. Now, one thing we've always said on the show, we like to answer questions philosophically. We're not here to set out practical solutions. However, let's just make a quick exception this week because there are a couple of ways we could make it. Sure, we can do what we want. Yeah, we could do what we want, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so one solution to this is to return to an era of wage caps. And the other would be to worry less about gross salary and more about net. So, you know, think about some kind of clever taxation and that doesn't need to apply just to footballers. Yeah, that's just rich people in general. Um, I suppose that on the tax point, I guess in effect that's what does exist, but maybe it's not enough. So, so in, you know, in the case of Messi, if he's earning 30 million a year with 50% tax, that's still worth over a thousand nurses' wages, right? And perhaps tax should be aggressive enough that take-homes are never a multiple more you know, say a hundred of something that we think is really essential to society and important. Mm. Also, the reality is that relying on tax isn't a smart idea in a world where the super rich can pay a ton of money to use obscure offshore accounts to limit their tax payments. Uh, in fact, I think Ronaldo is literally currently in the middle of a tax fraud case and Messi was named in the Panama Papers. <laughs> Admittedly, I'm not sure if that's related to their direct salaries. That'd just be too bad PR for the football clubs, probably. Mm. Nonetheless, the point stands it's something to consider from a practical perspective. Personally, I, I, I think a wage cap is the way to do it, like, like rugby. But, you know, there are two risks with this approach. One is that you get strike action from the footballers' union. And, I mean, I, I think that would be a major dick move on that part, but I could totally see it happening. <laughs> it saddens me, but given the, the arguments over furlough, I see them arguing against that. And I could also, to be fair, I could see a lot of misled fans kind of joining the bandwagon thinking that, to cap wages would be in some way to cap talent. It's that false dichotomy argument. Too many people think that they've become so used to how it is now, it somehow seems like if we don't pay them 50 million, it wouldn't exist. Yeah, like it's a sort of necessary aspirational thing, right? Yeah, when like, like we said, for the vast majority of history, it was not the case. <laughs> yeah, I, frankly, I think there's no risk that putting a wage cap in would actually limit talent. If there's a cap everywhere, then you know that you're the best when you hit that cap. And you'll still be taking home plenty enough to incentivize you. It's not like you try a little harder for 51 million versus 50 million. The type of people who play elite level sports tend to be intrinsically motivated beyond just the money, but especially when they have more than enough. The bigger risk though, and you know, I think this is the real problem, is that to enforce caps today would need global cooperation. Because even if Europe's UEFA succeeded in imposing caps, what's to stop America's MLS or China's Super League from spending way above that cap to attract top players overseas? I mean, you'd basically guarantee players like Neymar going over to China. Yeah. And I mean, that's actually roughly what has happened in UK rugby. Um, so for those who don't know, I think there's, there's a cap here. There's no cap in France. Result is that tons of players go to France. Yeah. So as you say, needs some thought, needs global cooperation. But mm. I think it's an investment worth making. Yeah. And overall, I guess that kind of puts in the position of saying, we think they're pretty overpaid. <laughs> yeah. maybe, probably on both counts. Maybe not on the first count, on the fact that the business of football is now so multifaceted and footballers are more than just, you know, players in the field now. They're assets that the people are buying. But overall, I just can't imagine a justification for an entertainer being paid a thousand times an essential worker. Nice. So before we end the show, we have to do three things today. We have a quick announcement. We have a ton of listeners' comments from the last episode. And we need to discuss what we're going to do next episode, which will be in two weeks' time. So the announcement is a fun one. Over the last few weeks, Jake and I have been working on a new project. And we just released it into alpha mode yesterday, so we wanted to tell you about it. It's called TreePoints. The URL is treepoints.green. Uh, we'll link it in the show notes. So right now, what we've got is a system where you can subscribe, and we will curate the best environmental projects in the world and pass on your subscription to them. And we're being really selective about the projects that have the highest impact, such as promoting green energy or carbon offsetting, and also making sure that they have a positive impact on local communities. Aimed at everyone who cares about climate change and wants to know how they can have an impact just as individuals or as small businesses. 
please bear in mind, like we said, if you are listening to this very close to release, it's in alpha. We're looking for feedback. We were mostly focused on the functionality in this release. It's intended for our friends and family, but we're happy to share it with you guys. And the vision doesn't stop here because what we want to do eventually is build out the hub to manage your green life. So by signing up to TreePoints, you'll be joining an active community of people who are uniting to fight climate change the smart way. So in time, we'll be launching really cool new features like hopefully a green debit card or credit card, green investments, and much, much more. Yeah, so there's no need for sponsorships in this podcast because we're just going to be plugging TreePoints. <laughs> Uh, check it out. Give us some feedback. We'll also be setting up a Substack newsletter soon. That's not live yet, but we'll update when it is. When it is, we'll link it in the show notes. Now, listen to comments. So, yeah, we wanted to say thanks uh, to everyone who got in touch after the last show. I mean, we were pretty overwhelmed with the reaction to it. You've made us one of the fastest growing organic podcasts out there. And that's pretty cool considering we haven't put any money into it. We're just doing it for fun. Mm. I wanted to read our favorite review. Clearly, our appeal for US reviews has actually worked. So this is from Will4523. Will, you should have a word with your parents. It's a really weird name they've given you. Um, <laughs> the co-hosts discuss the big and little things in our lives and how they intersect with morality, ethics, economics, and philosophy with insight and wit. The rapport is delightful. Why? I hate this guy, Jake. That's my ad lib, not the review. Um, <laughs> I come away with lots to think about and discuss, and I look forward to hearing more. Oh, cheers, Will. I, I, I've, I've got to admit, that's one of the first like, really genuine, don't know who this person is, reviews, and that's it's quite heartwarming. Yeah, we also had a review from David Rosenthal. Uh, we gave him a little shout out earlier. Um, the NBA fact that we shared. Yeah, uh, the guys from the Acquired podcast. And actually had a really great chat with David after our latest episode. And he gave us some cool advice on growing the yeah. podcast. So. If, you're, if you're into tech, startup acquisitions uh, and business more generally, definitely recommend their podcast. Uh, like I said, I listened to the NBA one and it inspired a lot of the football stuff that we learned. I had another couple of comments I just wanted to shout out quickly. So... Firstly, a girl I went to school with called Lucy and I actually had no idea if she'd come across the podcast. She dropped me a message the other day and she said, I just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying the podcast. I've shared it with friends I thought might also enjoy it and I'll continue to listen in. Keep up the great work. It's a joy to listen. That was very sweet. Another one I wanted to shout out. After the Facebook episode, we sent the link to the guys who worked on the Social Dilemma film, including a guy called Roger McNamee, who used to be an advisor to Mark Zuckerberg. And he replied to say, thanks. <laughs> I think the response literally said, Thank you. That was the entire email. Yeah. And then there was Reddit. Oh, man. We had a ton of comments on the episode on Reddit. Heartening to see that a lot of people agreed with our line of reasoning. There are some striking exceptions. Uh, this top comment refers to someone's coworker who had a strange disposition. The review reads, I'm a programmer and worked at an online gambling company, and it kind of bothered me that I made money off of people suffering. One of my coworkers used to say that, quote, I don't care if my code is used to organize lines at a concentration camp. I write code. If they use it for bad, that's on them. To which the top reply is still, all right, Eichmann. <laughs> Eichmann was a famous bureaucrat who ran concentration camps. Um, finally, Jake, what are we talking about next week? Okay, so at the time of recording, it's the week before the US elections. So to be fair, I mean, who knows what state the world will be in next week? Like we were thinking about doing something about voting, but there's a possibility we'll be too depressed to tackle that topic. Mm. It's funny how the US elections are such a global impact yeah. right i know the topic we talked about but haven't got around to is should companies take moral positions so that was with reference to the gillette ad we'll explain in more depth why i think that that's an interesting thing to talk about either way we'll be back with another episode in two weeks time see ya thanks guys